few years now since the, um, since the light bulb jokes were doing the rounds, you know. How many of this does it take to change a light bulb? How many of that does it ch take to change a light bulb? How many Church of Scotland members does it take to change a light bulb? Um, six. One person to change a light bulb and five to talk about how good the last light bulb was. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Make it a point that we're maybe not very keen on change. That's what the joke supposes, and it's certainly not something that everybody embraces enthusiastically. And yet issues around change uh, are very not what's at stake. And that's the case in that passage in Matthew chapter 15. The, the Pharisees think it's about change. Incidentally, and I should probably underline this in these uh, COVID times, the issue about washing hands before you eat um, was not anything to do with hygiene, but was to do with ritual washing in the Jews at that time. Um, I, I think God underlines uh, in the scriptures the importance of hygiene. But, uh, so this was a ritual washing, and that was the issue. The, the, the Pharisees thought this was Jesus trying to change things. They thought it was about their tradition, verse 2. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? But Jesus was clear it was not tradition versus new ways. It was not about the familiar against innovation. The issue was the human ways versus God's ways. The issue was the tradition of the elders, verse 2, and what God has said. Why do you break the command of God? Verse 3. And so the command of God is in contrast to, in opposition to, the rules that they have made up. And so the Pharisees are wrong in this passage, not because they are traditionalists and stick in the muds. They are wrong because they have put their tradition or their rules or their ways of doing things above Scripture. Verse 6, thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Now, as I said, we're looking at membership vows in this series, and um, it should be said clearly, the only expectations I think that Christians can put onto other Christians is, is what we can properly support and, and justify from Scripture. Other issues about other things we, we, we have no right to insist on. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He doesn't deny, notice, that the disciples were breaking the tradition of the elders. Nor does he say these traditions are out of date and new ones are needed. He pointed out that traditions that cannot be shown to be based on God's word are not things that we need to be bound by and are certainly not things that we bound one another by. That was his further criticism of the Pharisees. Not just that they were, had too high a view of their traditions, but they were putting aside what was clearly taught in God's Word. And more important than what form or style or tradition there is, 
Jesus says, more important than any of that is a genuine heart engagement. And he quotes from the the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And in doing so, Jesus affirms that keeping the rules, doing the things the way we like them done, is no use if we are not genuinely engaging with God. These people, verse 8, honour me with their lips. I don't know if that's the um, beginning, verse 8, I don't know if that's the beginning of the saying that we have about lip service. Um, but, but that's what that is, isn't it? They honour me with their lips, it's lip service. I'm not saying anything at all about whether I think the Prime Minister should stay or go. I'm not. But that's, that's, what's, that's, what's, that's what's got people angry, hasn't it? Lip service. Saying one thing and doing something else. Saying these are the rules, but I don't have to keep them. It's lip service. And we do not like lip service. And we should not like lip service. So, what do you think God should think about lip service and worship? If we affirm in our praise and in our prayer certain things, but don't live by them, don't want them to become real in our lives, it's lip service. Also, verse 8, we are familiar with the saying, well, his heart is not in it, or her heart is not in it. And again, that's what Isaiah had said in Jesus' quotes here. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far, far from me. Again, we don't honor and respect folks who are simply going through the motions. Worship is not keeping the rules, doing the rituals, maintaining the form of it, if our heart is not in it. Turning up for a service is not okay if our heart is not in it. Singing hymns of devotion or praise is pointless or worse if a heart is not in it. We're going through the motions then. Lip service. And Jesus says, verse 9, it's in vain. They worship me in vain. Jesus says, quoting Isaiah, there's such a thing as pointless or useless worship. It's when you're doing a bit of lip service. It's when your heart's not in it. If we say the Lord's Prayer but are not willing to forgive others, if we say the Lord's Prayer but are uh, knowingly putting ourselves in places where we're going to be tempted, that's worshipping in vain, isn't it? To say lead us not into temptation but deliberately go where we know we will be tempted is lip service. And in marked contrast, and a contrast that Jesus draws in this passage, in marked contrast to focusing just on the outward observance of ways and traditions, is this heart engagement, the real encounter with the living God. Our notions, our traditions, our preferences are to be laid aside when they clash with what's in God's Word. Because the ultimate reality of worship is not what we do or how it makes us feel, but God making himself known to us, God touching our lives and are responding to him. 
And so there's really, in a sense, two parts of that. There's the desire, to, the longing to, to want to engage with God, and also the delight when we do. And, and the things are, they're tied up with each other, aren't they? Suppose you're going to be going to the airport to, to meet a friend or a, or a relative that you've not seen for a long time. It's maybe five or ten or fifteen years since you've seen them. And you've been looking forward to the day. And on the way, as you're journeying to the airport, do you not feel a sense of anticipation? Is there not a desire going, this is, this is it, this is, this is, this is it, I'm, this, is who I'm, I'm going, this is going to happen? The psalmist expresses that kind of thing with reference to God. As the deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul th thirsts for God, the living God. Uh, I want to steer away from the um, experience. A flatmate of mine um, who grew up in the, in the Brethren um, told me once that he had a, a service where the preacher was preaching on Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water, my soul pants for you. Um, and the poor preacher went on and said, what we need is bigger pants, longer pants. And of course, everyone sniggered and fell under the seat. But, but we know what he was trying to say. We need those bigger longings. We, the desire should be great. As my dear pants for the water, for streams of water, so my soul pants for you. Whom have I in heaven but you, says the psalmist in Psalm 73. And earth has nothing I desire besides you. Again, in Psalm 63, you, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. See the sense of desire there. And that sense of desire, as I say, that someone is, is God is when they're on that way to the airport to see someone they've not seen for a long time. But when the person arrives, when the person comes through the, the, past the baggage climbing out into the, the foyer, it's no longer the sense of anticipation, it's no longer that, that longing to see, it's now delighting in someone being there. And again the psalmist, you make known to me the path of life, you will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Or again, as for me, I shall be vindicated and shall see your face. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with seeing your likeness. Or he says in Psalm 43, Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my joy and my delight. So both the excitement of desire in meeting God and the pleasure of being with Him are the test that worship is real. God is glorified both when we feel the present delight that we have in his beauty and also glorified by the feelings of desire that we have for more of his fullness. And these feelings that I described as you were going to the airport, they're, they're not feelings that you make yourself feel because they will help. They don't emerge because you want to feel these things. It's the natural response to the situation. And so in worship, our goal is not great feelings or affections as such, but to see and savor the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ to his image of God. 
or Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians. So both the crying out for more and the longing to have and enjoy the presence of God and the enjoyment of his presence are our worship. Now it's not just keeping the rules. And so it's true that turning up at church services, even on a regular basis, even on a regular basis over a long period of time, does not make someone a Christian. In fact, no amount of religious observance by us makes someone a Christian. What we in our own can do is only surface deep. Jesus was calling for a heart transformation. He was calling for new life and promised the gifting of his Holy Spirit to those who truly seek him so that they are transformed from the heart outwards. And so in verses 10 to 20 of our reading in Matthew 15, that's the point that Jesus is making. It's not what you do, it's not what you can put into your mouth, it's what's there inside that comes out. That's what's key. And that takes a work of God in our lives, the, the gift of the Spirit in our lives, that new life that Christ has promised to all who seek him. It takes that for there to be those intensity of desires, that kind of engagement that God is after. Jesus said, John 7, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, John observes, he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. And so, it's not an act of willpower that we need to perform the outward acts. Without the engagement of the heart, we don't really worship. And the engagement of the heart in worship is the coming alive of the feelings and emotions and affections of the heart. For where feelings for God are dead, worship is dead. These people, verse 8, honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Genuine feelings of your heart are not something that we as I say, make or invent, not something that are stepping stones to something else. And worship is an encounter with God. Think back to the illustration I used a few moments earlier about going to the airport. As you're on the journey to the airport, and as you're feeling the longing and the anticipation of seeing this friend and this relative that you haven't, haven't seen for years and years, and as you're looking forward, you do not decide to feel anticipation. You do not tell yourself, well, if I actually get excited about seeing them, the journey is going to pass quicker, and the journey is going to be all the better, so I'll make myself feel excited, I'll, make my, I'll give myself some anticipation. You don't do that. You simply feel it because you're looking forward. This is something great. And in the same way, when they come through the baggage area into the foyer, you don't decide to change from anticipation to, to rejoicing. It's a natural response. And if you had got to the airport and then discovered that the flight was delayed... You don't decide to feel disappointment. It comes. And any who have been through 
that horrible, horrible experience of hearing that the plane that their family or friends were on has gone missing, anyone going through that horrible experience doesn't work out that it was going to be to their advantage to feel fear and worry and frustration and anger and so on. That's simply what they feel when confronted by that situation. So no matter what the emotion is, it's not a means to something else. It's not a let's get emotional about our prayers so that that's not it. Worship is that genuine heart encounter with the living God. Suppose on their wedding anniversary, a husband goes home and gives his wife a bunch of her very favorite flowers. And she says, thanks, they're really beautiful. And he says, don't mention it. It's my duty as your husband to do that kind of thing. What happens next? (laughs) Does she hit him with the flowers? Maybe. And he doesn't make it any better, does he, by taking his wife out for dinner and saying, well, this is my duty too. That dishonors her, doesn't it? But suppose it's truly the case, and honestly the case, that he's able to say over dinner, I want to. There is nowhere else I would rather be tonight and nobody else I would rather be with. Suppose he could truly and honestly have said, I enjoyed looking for the flowers and getting you these flowers, knowing how fond you are of them. It's easy to see the difference between the two, isn't it? As different as night is from day, as chalk from cheese or whatever else. So what do we bring to worship? Is it a sense of I ought to, I should, I better go? I'd be in trouble if I don't. Is it a sense of, well, it's what I do at this time? Or is there a sense of saying to the Lord, I, I, there's nowhere else I'd rather be but be with your people and acknowledging who you are and all that you've done for us in and through Christ? That's what Jesus meant by These words they quoted from Isaiah, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. I think there's two things there in conclusion. One is, as I say, about the rules and expectations. We have no business putting any rules or expectations on others that we cannot support from Scripture. None. Scripture that says nothing about how you ought to dress when you turn up for church. Scripture that says nothing about whether you sit or stand at these different points or whatever or what kind of... Scripture says nothing about any of that. And we have no business holding one another accountable to the traditions or expectations of others rather than saying this is what the Word of God says. Jesus makes that contrast as clear as anything. 
But secondly, it's about the genuine heart engagement. And that's why in the vows underneath living the Lord's way, we've said, by faithful and eager participation in the worship services. I'm just wondering if we could have expressed that a bit better, actually. Because by faithful and eager participation in the worship services is not a comment on what you will get out of it or how worship will make you feel. Rather, it's about that genuine encounter with the living God. And when we have that genuine encounter with the living God, the feelings take care of themselves. Just like when you're going to see the friend at the airport, the feeling takes care of itself. When somebody hears that the plane has gone missing, the feelings come, they take care of themselves. Later on, would you say today, well, I was at church this morning. Well, that's fine, so you were. Could you as easily say, we were engaging with the living God. God was with us, not because of the building, not because of the time of day, not because of him, but because God has promised that where and when we gather around his word, that where and when we gather together and seek him, he's to be found. And it should be as easy and as definite in our minds to say, I met with the living God, as it is to say, I was at church this morning. We're not after the feeling, we're not after the emotion. We're after that living relationship with the living God, which is expressed in faithful and eager participation in our worship services. Let us pray.